Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Melanie, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I was wondering, for our listeners, could you give us a bit of an introduction to your wonderful recently published book, Burn? Yeah, sure. So Burn is an adult and young adult crossover fiction novel, and it's about a young fellow named Andrew, um, and it's about how he has set a really big, serious bushfire, and and it looks at... um, the, the consequences of being a young black fellow who's done something that's quite destructive to country. Um, it asks why a young black fellow would do something like that. And, um, and it looks at, you know, intergenerational trauma and also hope as well. Beautiful. And could you pinpoint if there is a moment, like what inspired you to be exploring such a story? There, there's a couple of things that happen um, to inspire burn, but the the main one, especially when it comes to thinking about fire and why uh, good kids do bad things, which has been a thing that I've been talking about a little bit, is that um, a couple of years ago I was dead in the middle of writing the manuscript. It was it was finished in my head, but um, it just wasn't quite working. And I had a friend come to visit me um, from Turtle Island and I took her up to Mount Cutha, uh, which is a popular lookout spot. I mean, it's obviously a special place for um, for the local mob, but it's also where you take tourists to go and look out on Brisbane. Um, and I took her up there and it was a really, really, really hot day in February. Um, we just gone into total fire ban and um, I guess for people who maybe come from Queensland you might know that when we go into total fire ban it means that you know they do things like rope off the barbecue areas in the parks as well because any spark of anything could set a a catastrophic bushfire Um, and so we've been up there and I'd driven around and I'd seen the barbecues roped off and it was burning hot you know it's the sort of day where you get out of the car and your thongs stick to the road kind of thing and we were up looking at the lookout and as we were walking up there was a group of kids and obviously I can't speak to exactly whether they were a mix of black kids and white kids but there it looked outwardly that's what it looked like um to me and they were lighting fires so they they weren't actually lighting them they had a pile of kindling and a stick and they were rubbing them together and I kept looking at them and I looked around for their parents and they were sort of you know giggling away like teenage boys do when they're doing something naughty and they they think they're going to get caught and people looking at them and I the whole time I was up at the lookout I kept thinking to myself um what what happens here like why why would kids do something like this? It's all over the news. It's all over everywhere. We know that this is a bad time and that fires like this are bad. Um, And also then I kept thinking to myself, what if that was a mix of black kids and white kids? And and what happens if they do catch a start a fire? And what happens if 
people are asked to go forward when they've seen something and they say, well, there was a group of black kids and white kids there. And what happens when the cops come and what what are the consequences there? And then, but and so I was thinking about those things, but then the really important question for me then became, but why would an Aboriginal kid do this when, you know, it's so inherent in, in our connection to country that we care for country? Um, and, and and what makes a kid do this? So that's that's sort of where I started with questions. And and I quite often do that where I'll see something and I'll go, why why is that happening? And instead of doing the simple thing and going up to these young fellas and going, why are you doing this, eh? Uh, I wrote a story about it. <laughs> and with, I guess, getting answers to those questions through your writing, was this something that you really had to sort of think through that sort of progression of that storyline or were you seeking... Yeah, it, it was something that I really had to um, think through. So I it, it particularly, like not to give spoilers as well, but um, particularly because I kept thinking to myself, all roads lead to Andrew being the, uh, being the sole blackfella in this group, um, in the story who set the fire. All roads lead to the consequences being very harsh for him. And he's he's actually already set a fire as well um, in, an, in another state in Tasmania when, when the book opens, he's already set one. Um, so this is the second one. And I just kept thinking all roads lead to incarceration for this child. Um, you know, he's done it in Queensland. Um, everyone knows that Queensland we have, you know, human rights violating child laws where children, you know, were the worst incarceration laws for children and now we've got them going into watch houses with adult um, adult offenders as well. So we know that in Queensland the penalties are harsh before even judgment comes down and, and that frightened me, right, because I don't want to write a book where it was like, well, everybody knows this kid's going to go to prison and that's the life that he has is in and out of prison um, because I don't want to perpetuate those stereotypes about us and our mob and and all of those things so like without spoiling it there's hope in there it is a work of fiction though so we all know the realities for Andrew maybe wouldn't be the way it turns out in the book yeah wow that's very powerful and for the reader I guess reading this book what are you hoping that they're drawing out from that so it, it's interesting because it really depends on who the reader is, right? So I think, um, it, you know, and I've already heard from a lot of white fellows and non-Indigenous folks that what it does for them is make them go, oh, this actually isn't the way that child offenders are handled. Um, and I guess some, one of the things that I was thinking about was, yeah, you see that stuff online, like it's always the neighbourhood Facebook groups and it's always the white boomers that are saying things like, oh, you know, these kids are around knocking around tagging things or vandalising and where are their parents and lock them up and whatever else. Um, and I, I don't want to contribute to that dialogue at all um what I would like and obviously these are the ones that aren't going to read books either so I don't know whether I'm going to achieve that but what I what I would like is for people to think more deeply 
about those stereotypical ideas that they might have um, when they see kids out doing things that are destructive and um, and realise that they're just kids and they're worthy of love and, and, and care and community and culture, you know. So that's that's one of the things and and for for mob um you know I've always found real comfort in reading books like Melissa Lukashenko's work and Tony Birch um that the comfort in there about seeing you know parts of my story and parts of my family in their work you know it might just be that tiny little taste and I hope that maybe it's comfort um for mob there and also hope as well and I hope that they they see that there's a real, you know, heart for our for our kids in the book. Beautiful. And this as well, this has been a, a manuscript that you've been actually working on for quite some time, which I find yeah. really incredible. So um, I know that it's been twice shortlisted for the David Unayapon Award and once for the yeah. Boundless Indigenous Writers Mentorship and that a similar short story based on an early draft was also shortlisted for the Peter Carey Short Story Award. What mm. sort? That, that's an inc- that's an incredible journey for a manuscript yeah. to be on prior to publication. In what ways do you feel like um, either that sort of recognition impacted the final sort of story, or what was that sort of journey like? I guess having those sort of hints of recognition along the way before reaching this end result. Yeah, uh, uh, that's such a good question. I love that question because you know I talk about the publication journey. It started as a short story that I wrote um, as an undergrad in my creative writing degree. It blew out to be a novel straight after uh, straight after my degree. I sort of spent two years um, sending the short story to people like Anita Heiss, for example, and asking them to have a look at it and sit with me. And um, and and they were like, yeah, there's a novel in this, blow it out a little bit. And it took, it took me a while. I think I had about 50,000 words when it first started going off to publishers, which was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, well, 10 years ago. Um, and and the, the thing about the recognition is that every time it got submitted somewhere and I got some sort of recognition, uh, I knew that it was an important story and it was it was like confirmation that what I was toiling away on for all these years at home, you know, like there's that image of a writer in a dark room writing all the way by themselves, um, that I was toiling away on something that was worthwhile, that people would want to read, that said something important, that I had a voice. Um, but also equally I think that... Um, it found the right publisher and I keep thinking about that book 10 years ago and the questions that I was asked about it. Um, you know, for example, I don't think it was as obvious that they were Indigenous in the first book, which is so weird. Like it had lingo and stuff in it and, you know, obviously me being a black fellow, of course, I were going to be black characters, but I know that a publisher asked me why why they were so poor and why Andrew had food insecurity and why Andrew's dad keeps losing his job early on. And, you know, I was like, well, well is this because people don't know that, like, so many mob have food insecurity and that kids are, you know, pinching money wherever they can get it because they're hungry, Um and do they not know that, you know, for people working jobs like factory work, and this was factory work in the 80s and 90s when his dad would have been working, especially in Tasmania, when factories downsize, 
oftentimes when there's no cause to get rid of people, racist bosses will get rid of the blackfellas first, right? And so there's job insecurity and there's that movement. And, yeah, and it wasn't seen. So, like, I think an earlier draft of this book wouldn't have said the messages that it says as strongly, um, certainly wouldn't have had the hope that it had, um, that that it's got now. I, I've i really spent a lot of time, um, it's where I'm really grateful to the, the um, writers who have come before me who have paved space in this literary world um, who have told powerful stories that have impacted me like Melissa Lukashenko and Tony Birch, Tara Jean Winch, Anita Heiss, you know, I will I will scream about them, you know, even um, back to um, uh, Doris Pilkington with Rabbit Proof Fence and so on. Um, all, the, all the black literary canon has shown me what it is to tell a story and I don't think I would have been as Obviously, I would have always been proud, but I am so proud to put this book with them and 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 stand next to them or a little bit behind them, I guess. Too. Definitely next um, to them for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Tony Birch launched my book yesterday, and I, and and he talked about that, and I had a little bit of a cry to myself. I'm like, I'm standing with Tony Birch, who I admired so much. Um, but yeah, to stand to stand with them and put my book in that literary canon, I'm so proud of that now. And I don't think that um, I will look back in ten years and have regret about this story because it does have all these things. Um, Melissa Lukashenko talks about how her characters have beauty, humor, truth, and land. And um, when you look at her work. You know, she doesn't shy away from the hard things, from the trauma, from from the things that we experience, that our families experience, that our friends experience. But by giving them those things, she's helping. Like uh, she talks about how it rests back the stereotype about the narratives told about us mm. because, of course, we all know that there's trauma and pain in our history, but also like black love is amazing and our communities are amazing and our um, sisterhoods are amazing, our brotherhoods are amazing and showing that we are beautiful people with so much um, to fight for is is so important. So, yeah, I, I think it's been a really long journey to publication but these things happen in the right time so getting recognized is good um and I was certainly frustrated five years ago four years ago when I was getting shortlisted and it wasn't being published I was like well someone tell me what's wrong with this book Mm. um but it's come in the right time oh for sure and thank you so much for just everything that you responded with just then because you've given me so much to think about especially like the, you know, as you were saying, like whether it was the editor-publisher reaction to the stories you were telling and being like, oh, but why is are there these themes of difficulty yeah. when that's quite inherent to many of our lives? Like I just yeah. I, I quite relate to that and um, especially as like, uh, ugh, like you know, uh, world-building fiction stories and the experiences that I know are quite similar to what you describe. And so, yeah. you know, and I get to others, it seems atypical, but it's like that's that is what life is like and trying to write to another experience is quite foreign in that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And then you're just the beautiful as well, like um, for Tony Birch to be (laughs) at your book launch and to be, that is incredible. I'm just so thrilled to hear all of what you've achieved. Yeah, it's, it 
it feels a little bit like a dream to be honest with you you know I it's, it's better than my wildest dreams but last night I was in the in an uber going to my launch and my auntie's sitting with me and she goes are you excited and I was like can you pinch me because <laughs> I feel I feel a little bit like I'm like I'm dreaming but um yeah it's it's very exciting and um yeah it yeah it's just the best thing that's ever happened really and it's been you know the culmination of all this work I think is what makes it taste so much better <laughs> yeah definitely and you have so you've illustrated for us quite well the journey of over a decade that has happened for burn to reach the point where we have now but I would really love to ask you about in general what was your pathway towards writing because I know this is something that's very interesting for our, our listeners to learn about the different ways in which we find uh ways to express our passions and you've ended up in such a beautiful place with yours yeah um it's been yeah it's it's been long um so I, I I left school and and didn't like I had a hard time in school. When you read the book, some of the things my my story is not Andrew's story, but some of the teenage stuff is is poured straight from my own life. So I grew up in in Luchawita in Tasmania. Um, my parents decided that it was time for us to move when I was about fourteen and and took us um, to Brisbane. Um, and I and I actually hadn't spent a lot of time with my grandparents up here, and, and we moved straight in with them. Um, so it it sort of went from being four to six, and and then like a, a more sort of um, culturally black family in that respect, right? Because it was it was nan and pop, and they were kind of more parents as well whereas I wasn't used to that with my with my white grandparents it was really different you know um and so it was moving into that space um and it was it's getting to know aunties and uncles and extended family that hadn't been and being a bit close to ancestral country as well but it was it was a bit of an upheaval like it feels like that moment should have been a coming home but it was also upheaval because I'd moved away from a life that I'd known. I was actually more involved in community and stuff with mob when I was in Tassie as a kid. We moved up here, up to Queensland, and it was, yeah, it was it was very isolating and I was in a bigger school and, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do, right? So I, um, I mucked around. I wagged school. I... Um, wasn't very nice to my mum and dad and my nan and pop. I was pretty awful. And and the reason I tell you this feels like a long-winded way of saying how I got there, but the reason why I tell you this is because um, I got reasonable grades but I didn't get a good enough score to go to university. I applied for something at university that I didn't really want, if I was honest, um, just because everyone was applying for things and I kind of knew I wasn't going to get it if I said it there. Um, and I went off to work. So I just worked in retail and fast food and hospo for years. And then I worked my way um, into a marketing career, which was very strange. Um, it was entry-level marketing and I was doing a lot of writing. Um, I was writing copy. It was in a pathology lab. So I was writing um, like flyers that sat in a doctor's surgery that would tell you like how to do a urine sample <laughs> and those sorts of things um and it really funny despite the subject matter I loved it I I loved writing all day and I found that I was really really good at 
picking up on mistakes. So I got to the point where I was like proofreading CEO emails before they went out and writing our staff newsletter and I loved it. But the other thing that I was doing was I was spending all of my free time on the internet writing fan fiction for all of my favourite TV shows. So I'd do like Doctor Who and CSI and everything. I was writing so all cool. these fan fiction. Yeah, and I was, and I, my students laugh at me. They're like, whoa, Mel's a big nerd. Um, but yeah, I was writing all this fan fiction and I was like, and I was like, this is incredible. I just want to write. Like how, how can I write all day? I don't want to do all this other marketing stuff. It, you know, it's fine, but um, I want to do the writing part. And so I actually, much to my parents' dismay, I'd worked my way up from, you know, hospo to a marketing job. I was like, I'm going to go to university now. And I was 23 when I started uni. So I sold my car. So I had some money. I quit my job and I went off to um, to university and did a creative writing degree. And I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I told them I didn't think I was going to be a novelist and I didn't think that, you know, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to win the Miles Franklin one day. But, of course, you know, and now I know Melissa Lukashenko, I think maybe I would love to win the Miles Franklin one day. Um, but, I, yeah, cross my fingers and I said, she's going to make my writing better and I'll do three years at uni and come back out and do marketing um, again. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I've done a lot of other things in between. Um, but I'm just finishing off my PhD now in creative writing. So um, I, I found my feet at the university. It allows me to be in a classroom teaching writing, thinking about writing all the time, which is when I look back at that girl that was bunking off at lunchtime to write fan fiction um, is actually what I was dreaming of I've I've worked out a way I don't necessarily sit and write all day but I get to talk about writing all day and um yeah and that that's just been the best part about it so I you know I always tell them a lot of my students at 18 you know they come straight from uni and no, straight from high school into undergrad but um I, I'm pretty loud proponent of sometimes what you think you want to do when you're 18 and you're forced to make a decision might not be the right decision and try everything that you can you know like I did everything from working in a donut shop to selling shoes to writing urine test flyers right and um, especially if you want to go into writing or anything creative all those life experiences just add a richness to your writing because you've lived a thousand lives before you sit down to write the page so yeah that's my advice <laughs> that's incredible that's so inspiring and to know that your origins um, are writing fan fiction as a teen and just finding <laughs> that joy there is so cool to me yeah yeah, I think fan fiction, like, you know, not to not to get too dramatic, but I feel like it kind of saved my life, you know, but I was pretty depressed. I didn't because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I met people. Like the other thing about writing fan fiction is that you're online and you get a community of people when you don't necessarily have a community of people in your real life. And um, yeah, and I'm still friends with people that I wrote fan fiction with in my teens. 
all over the world. I've traveled to meet them. Um, and That's it's, awesome. It's, yeah, it's kind of incredible. So, you know, and, and also it meant that when I got to university, I was used to being critiqued and graded. So, and that's a really key skill when you're a writer is like learning how to get someone to say, oh, I liked this part, but the rest of it's a bit terrible. Get into rewriting that and you kind of don't get insulted anymore. It helped me grow a thick skin. Wow. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Fan, fan fiction is is fantastic. Being a nerd is, is good. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. I feel... Um, I feel when people aren't familiar with what fan fiction actually is, it's hard for them to sort of conceptualise it, but it's really just talented high-level writing coming from people who are very passionate about worlds that other people have built. Um, and also yeah. you're so correct about that sort of direct feedback as well you would be receiving from people reading your work and how that would sculpt you, I guess, to nowadays being sort of well-receptive to editorial yeah. feedback. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not, like, I'm still terrified. Don't get me wrong, I'm still terrified of reviews, like the, you know, official reviews coming out about Burn, but I I feel like I can sort of go, this is not going to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had bad feedback before, at least it's not going to be someone, they say flaming in, in the fan fiction community, at least I'm not going to get flamed about this one, or even if I do, I can just be like, well, that's a flame, everybody gets them. <laughs> and could I ask... Um, because you mentioned you're doing creative writing PhD. Would you be yeah. able to give us, like, I guess, like an, in a nutshell about what that would entail? Yeah, it's um, it's very cool. Um, so I can do a PhD. Well, I've done a PhD. You can do it if you're a creative person where it's called um, practice-led and it means that um, a proportion, the majority of your thesis becomes that, um, that practice. So for me as a writer, um, 80,000 words of my PhD was another novel. Um, so that leads it and then you write, um, you use academic words, I know it's fine with you, but you write an exegesis, that's the more academic part talking about what you've done in in your work. Um, and I know people are doing visual arts and fashion and dance and um, drama and you can, it's really good to um, shift research in, into those areas and it can be really important. Um, so I, I'm looking at, um, it started out that I wanted to write about intersectional feminism um, in romantic comedy. So that's, you know, um, feminism for everybody. I wanted to write a book that um, didn't isolate anybody based on their minority or their um their identity so um you know as a black fella I'd read a lot of romantic comedy that was really centered on white women um except for Anita Heiss of course which was what what I wanted to do was follow in her footsteps as you can tell I'm a massive fangirl (laughs) um and yeah I wanted to follow in Anita's in in Anita's footsteps she was writing these strong black 20 something women who were right having these joyful amazing lives and wearing amazing shoes and um having a lot of um adventures and dating and all of those sorts of things and I wanted to put that in the page where I didn't want um people to feel like they were offended if it didn't match their identity so I did a lot of work to you know make sure I I have multiple identities um so 
I, I looked at like um, queerness um, and in the 90s queerness was something that was often made a joke of or the or the worst thing that you could possibly be in a mm. romantic comedy or even if it was portrayed um, positively it would be your um, gay best friend or something like that so I, I, I you know took away the the joke element of that I actually made my romance a queer romance um, I looked at body type I looked at, you know, value judgment on food. I ate a donut, so now I need to go for a run kind of thing because food is food, particularly um, particularly for us as mob, right? You know, sometimes the only food that you can get is the quote-unquote unhealthy food. Mm. So I looked at those sorts of things. So, you know, you just need to, um, like, have a have sort of a question. And as I said, I've, I always write to a question and, and something you want to set out to do. So, yeah, I've written a romantic comedy about an Aboriginal girl who wants to work in publishing and she goes off to New York City and um, can't get a job in publishing and ends up working in a doggy daycare and it's, it's all about the life that she has there. Um, and that comes out next year. Oh, that's um, so incredible. That's been published as well. Very oh, congratulations. <laughs> that's so exciting. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Wow. Yeah, and completely different to Burn. It's like, um, you know, I'm gonna, um, I get to, it's really nice. I get to decompress a little bit from writing sort of more serious stuff and thinking about issue space and then go and write something kind of fluffy and fun. It does have some serious undertones, but it's funny and silly and, you know, kind of cute and all of those things and then I you know probably will go back and do something else a bit more serious so the alternating seems to be how I want to set things out these days well I look forward to having a chat with you then next year about your next yeah. project great <laughs> <Right. laughs> so thank you so much Melanie for your time today could you let our listeners know where they could find burn if they're eager for a reading yeah, you can find it at um, all of your good bookstores. I always encourage you if you can and you have the resources to go into an independent bookstore, um, but they are a little bit more expensive. So, you know, you can also pop into your local Big W or um, on Booktopia as well and order it from home. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're in all of the all of the good bookstores at the moment. I love that. All of the good bookstores and an encouragement to, if you can, to buy from independent uh, businesses or retailers. Yeah. If yeah, you can't but, afford it, Big Dub's always got some good deals. Yeah, Big Dub. And also, um, I don't know if people know that if you pop into your local library, uh, I, know, I know people ask me all the time and, you know, I think it's really important to point out, pop into your local library and, and, and borrow it if it's there and, um, if you can't request it because authors get paid um, for you borrowing books at the, at the library as well. So it's it's much better for you to do that than go after more nefarious ways of getting free books. Um, access your local library. So, um, yeah, and Perfect all good bookstores and your local library. <laughs> yes, local libraries is where it's at and still supporting authors. So that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, absolutely. Melanie, Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the launch of such an incredible book. And I look forward to speaking to you next year. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.